0: Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 9 of Mongols and Mamluks and the title is The Ninth Crusade. Now you may well be wondering why I'm talking about the Ninth Crusade when the last major crusade you heard about was the Seventh. So what happened to the Eighth? Well, the answer is that so far... I've omitted the detail of the Eighth Crusade because it never got to Outremer and it was also in itself a bit of a non-event. But a quick summary of what did happen is that the French King Louis IX, or Saint Louis, since he was made into a saint after his death, who as you know led the Seventh Crusade in 1248-54, decided in 1267 to lead another crusade to try to stop Baibars' progress in destroying the Crusaders. But he couldn't get nearly the same level of support in France for it as he did for the Seventh Crusade, and it was really a much more limited expedition than the Seventh. And the reason it never even reached Outremer was because Louis decided to stop in Tunisia in North Africa before heading on to Outremer. Now, the reason for going there seems to have been two things. First, there was a rumour that the caliph of Tunis might convert to Christianity, and Louis IX hoped to recruit him to the crusading cause. And second, Louis's brother Charles of Anjou had inherited the Kingdom of Sicily and liked the idea of having Tunisia, which of course is close to Sicily as a Christian ally and also within his sphere of influence. So the French fleet set off in July 1270 and landed near to Tunis, but the Caliph of Tunis did not convert to Christianity as hoped, and instead he resisted the Crusaders who settled down to besiege Tunis but there things went disastrously wrong because in the very hot Tunisian summer the sanitation in the French camp simply wasn't good enough and an epidemic of dysentery swept through the army, killing thousands and even killing Louis IX himself. So the whole expedition was abandoned and that was the end of the Eighth Crusade. Now, in this episode, we'll move on to the Ninth Crusade, which really was the last proper crusade and was led by the English prince Edward, son of the English king Henry III. Now, I know that you'll be thinking, Hey, we're drawing towards the end of the story of Outremer and the Great Crusades in the Holy Land. So what's going to happen to this podcast? Well, I'm pleased to say that it's far from over yet. First, we've still got some exciting things to happen before the last Crusaders were defeated in 1291. Not least, actually, with the Mongols, who were still a global superpower in the 13th century and much more of a threat to the Mamluks than the Crusaders were. And second, let's not forget that this podcast is called Byzantium and the Crusades, so I'd really like to get back to Byzantium. And when we finish with the Crusades in 1291, I'd like to narrate the story of the fall of Byzantine Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453. It's an amazing story, not only because the siege itself was very exciting, but because it's the next step in the war between Islam and Christianity. We've had the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert, we've had the Crusaders the Seljuk Turks, the Arab Caliphates, of course, the Mamelukes. And then we move on to a new era with the Ottoman Turks versus the remaining Byzantines. And after capturing Constantinople in 1453, the Ottomans invaded Europe. And by 1683, they're actually at the gates of Vienna, which is pretty much in the centre of Europe. So this story goes full circle while, with the Crusades being followed by a major Islamic invasion of Europe. And then I'd like to end this podcast series with Stephen Runciman's reflections on what the Crusades and the fall of Byzantium meant for world history. And after that, I'm delighted to say that I'm intending to do more history podcasts on other subjects around Roman, Byzantine, and medieval history. So stay tuned for those. But let's now get on with this episode, which is, of course, the Ninth Crusade. And as before, I'll read from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. The Ninth Crusade was the long-promised English Crusade, for King Henry III of England had long ago taken the cross, but he was now an old man, worn out by civil wars. In his stead, he encouraged his son and heir, Prince Edward, to set out for the East. Edward was in his early thirties, an able, vigorous and cold-blooded man who had already shown his gifts as a statesman in dealing with his father's rebels. He decided on his crusade, after he heard of the fall of Antioch, but he planned it carefully and methodically. Unfortunately, although many of the English nobles had agreed to accompany him, One by one, they made their excuses. It was only with about a thousand men that the prince eventually left England in the summer of 1271, together with his wife, Eleanor of Castile. His brother, Edmund of Lancaster, one-time candidate for the Sicilian throne, followed him with reinforcements a few months later. He was also accompanied by a small contingent of Bretons under their count and one from the Low Countries under Tedaldo Visconti. Edward's intention had been to join King Louis at Tunis and sail on with him to the Holy Land, but he arrived in Africa to find the French king dead and the French troops about to return home. He wintered in Sicily with King Charles, whose first wife had been his aunt, and sailed on next spring to Cyprus and then to Acre, where he landed on the 9th of May 1271. He was joined there soon afterwards by King Hugh of Cyprus and Prince Beaumont. Edward was horrified by the state of affairs in Outremer. He knew that his own army was small, but he hoped to unite the Christians of the East. Then he hoped to make an appeal to the Mongols for a combined attack on Baibars. His first shock was to find that the Venetians maintained a flourishing trade with the Egyptian Sultan, supplying him with all the timber and metal that he needed for his army, while the Genoese were doing their best to force their way in to this profitable business and already controlled the slave trade of Egypt. They showed him the licences that they had received from the Crusader High Court at Acre for this purpose. He could do nothing to stop them. Next, he hoped that the whole army of Cyprus would follow its king to the mainland. But though some knights had come, they insisted that they were volunteers and when King Hugh of Cyprus demanded that they should stay in Syria as long as he was there, their spokesman, his wife's cousin, James of Ebelin, declared firmly that they were only obliged to serve in the defence of the island. He arrogantly added that the king could not count it as a precedent that Cypriot nobles had gone to fight on the mainland, for they had done so more often at the bidding of the Ebelins than at any king's bidding. But he hinted that if King Hugh of Cyprus had made his request more tactfully, it might have been granted. The argument carried on until 1273, when, in a rare spirit of compromise, the Cypriots agreed to spend four months on the mainland if the king or his heir in person were present with the army. It was, however, by then too late for Edward's purpose. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office listen and subscribe at Namoreswellbeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. The English prince was not much more successful with the Mongols. As soon as he arrived at Acre, he sent an embassy to the Ilkhan in Persia, consisting of three Englishmen. Abaga, the Ilkhan, whose main armies were fighting in Turkestan, agreed to send what aid he could. In the meantime, Edward contented himself with a few minor raids just across the Muslim frontier. In mid-October 1271, the Ilkhan Abaga fulfilled his promise by detaching 10,000 horsemen from his garrison in Anatolia. They swept down past Eintab into Syria, defeating the Turkoman troops that protected Aleppo. The Mamluk garrison of Aleppo fled before them to Hama. They continued their course past Aleppo to Marat and numan and Apeyamea. There was panic among the local Muslims, but Baibars, who was at Damascus, was not unduly alarmed. He had a large army with him and he summoned reinforcements from Egypt. When he began to move northwards on the 12th of November, the Mongols turned back. They were not strong enough to face the full Mamluk army and their Turkish vassals in Anatolia were becoming restive. They retired behind the Euphrates, laden with booty. While Baibars was thus distracted by the Mongols, Edward took the opportunity to lead the Crusaders across Mount Carmel to raid the plain of Sharon. But his troops were too few for him even to attempt to storm the little Mameluke fortress of Kakun, which guarded the road across the hills. A more effective Mongol invasion and a larger crusade were needed if any territory was to be reconquered. By the spring of 1272, Prince Edward realised that he was wasting his time. All that he could do without greater manpower and more allies was to arrange a truce that would preserve Outremer for the time being. Baibars on his side was ready for a truce that the pathetic remnant of the Crusader Kingdom, lay at his mercy so long as he was not hampered by external complications. His army's first task was to ward off the Mongols, who must further be restrained by diplomatic action in Anatolia and on the steppes, until he felt secure on that front. It was not worthwhile to make the effort necessary to destroy the last Crusader fortresses. In the meantime, he must prevent intervention from the west, and for that purpose, he must maintain good relations with Charles of Anjou, the only potentate who might have brought effective help to the Crusaders. But Charles's main ambition was the conquest of Constantinople. Syria was, for the moment, of secondary interest to him. He already had vague thoughts of adding Outremer to his empire. He therefore wished to preserve its existence, but to do nothing that would enhance the power of King Hugh, whom he hoped someday to displace. He was willing to mediate between Baibars and Edward. On the 22nd of May 1272, a peace was signed at Caesarea between the Sultan and the government of Acre. The kingdom was guaranteed for ten years and ten months the possession of its present lands, which consisted mainly of the narrow coastal plain from Acre to Sidon, together with the right to use without hindrance the pilgrim road to Nazareth. The county of Tripoli was safeguarded by the truce of 1271. Prince Edward was known to wish to come back to the east at the head of a greater crusade so despite the truce baybars decided to eliminate him on the 16th of june 1272 an assassin disguised as a native christian penetrated into the prince's chamber and stabbed him with a poisoned dagger the wound was not fatal but edward was seriously ill for some months the sultan hastened to dissociate himself from the deed by sending his congratulations on the prince's escape. As soon as he had recovered, Edward prepared to sail for home. Most of his comrades had already left. His father was dying, his own health was bad, and there was nothing more that he could do. He embarked from Acre on the 22nd of September 1272 and returned to England to find his father dead and himself proclaimed king. Meanwhile, the Archbishop of Liège, who had accompanied Edward to Palestine, had left the previous winter on the unexpected news that he had been elected Pope. As Gregory X, he never lost his interest in Palestine, and he made it his chief task to see how the crusading spirit could be revived. His appeals for men to take the cross and fight in the East were circulated throughout Europe as far as Finland and Iceland. It is possible that they even reached Greenland and the coast of North America, but there was no response. Meanwhile, he collected reports that would explain the hostility of public opinion. These reports were tactful. None of them touched on the essential trouble that the crusade itself had become debased. Now that spiritual rewards had been promised to men who would fight against the Byzantines, the Albigensians and even the German Hohenstaufen, the Holy War had merely become an instrument of a narrow and aggressive papal policy, and even loyal supporters of the papacy saw no reason for making an uncomfortable journey to the East when there were so many opportunities of gaining holy merits in less exacting campaigns. Against this background, the crusader King Hugh, based in Cyprus, had a realistic vision. He neither expected nor Desired a crusade, but merely wished to preserve the truce with bybars. Yet he found it difficult to even gain the support of the surviving crusader cities in Outremer. In particular, the Commune of Acre had always resented his direct rule, while the Order of the Temple, which had disliked his reconciliation with the Montforts and had opposed his accession to the throne, grew steadily more unfriendly towards him. The hospital on whose good will he might have counted, had declined in importance after the loss of its headquarters at Crac des Chevaliers. Its only remaining great castle was Margab on its high hill still overlooking Boulignas. Already in 1268, the Grand Master Hugh of Revelle wrote that the order Could now only maintain 300 knights in Outremer instead of 10,000 as in the old days, but the temple still possessed its headquarters at Tortosa as well as Sidon and the huge castle of Athlit, while its banking connections with the whole Levantine world increased its strength. Thomas Berard, who was Grand Master from 1256 to 73, had in his earlier days been loyal to the Cypriot regents, and although he had grown to dislike Hugh, he had never opened. Challenged him, but his successor, William of Beaujeu, was of a different calibre. He was related to the royal house of France and was proud, ambitious, and energetic. When he was elected, he was in Apulia in the territory of his cousin Charles of Anjou. He came to the east two years later, determined to further Charles's projects and opposed, therefore, from the outset to King Hugh. In October 1276, the Order of the Temple purchased a village called La Fauconnerie, a few miles south of Acre from its landlord, and deliberately omitted to secure the king's consent to the transaction. Hugh's complaints were ignored in his exasperation with the orders, with the commune and with the merchant colonies. He determined to leave the thankless kingdom. He suddenly packed up his belongings and retired to Tyre, intended to sail from there to Cyprus. He left Acre without appointing a warden. The Templars and the Venetians, who were their allies, were delighted. But the patriarch... The Hospitallers and the Teutonic Knights, as well as the Commune and the Genoese, were shocked and sent delegates to Tyre to beg him at least to appoint a deputy. He was too angry at first to listen to them, but at last, probably on the pleading of John of Montfort, he nominated as Warden Balian of Ebelin, son of John of Arsouf, and he appointed judges for the courts of the kingdom. Immediately afterwards, he embarked for Cyprus by night, taking leave of no one. From Cyprus, he to the Pope to justify his action. Meanwhile, Balian back in Acre had a difficult task. There were riots in the streets between Muslim merchants from Bethlehem under the Templars' protection and Nestorian merchants from Mosul, whose patrons were the Hospitallers. Hostilities flared up again between the Venetians and the Genoese. It was only with the help of the Patriarch and of the hospital that any government was maintained. King Hugh's departure back to Cyprus created an opportunity for Charles of Anjou in 1277 Maria of Antioch sold her rights to the Kingdom of Jerusalem to him. Charles at once assumed the title of King of Jerusalem and sent out his general, Roger of San Severino, Count of Marisco, with an armed force to be his warden based at Acre. Thanks to the help of the Temple and the Venetians, Roger was able to land at Acre, where he produced credentials signed by Charles, by Maria and by the Pope. Balin of Ibelin was acutely embarrassed. He had no instructions from King Hugh at Cyprus, and he knew that the temple and the Venetians were ready to take up arms on behalf of Roger, while neither the patriarch nor the hospital would promise to intervene. To avoid bloodshed, he delivered the citadel to Roger, who hoisted Charles's banner and proclaimed him king of Jerusalem and Sicily, and then ordered the barons of the kingdom to do homage to himself as the king's warden. The barons hesitated less for love of Hugh than for dislike of an admission that the throne could be transferred without a decision of the High Court to preserve some legality they sent delegates to Cyprus and to ask Hugh if he would release them from their allegiance to him Hugh refused to give an answer at last. Roger, who was firmly in the saddle, threatened to confiscate the estates of anyone who did not pay him homage, but he allowed time for one more appeal to Hugh. It was equally fruitless, so the barons submitted to Roger. Soon afterwards, Beaumont VII acknowledged him as lawful warden, Roger appointed various Frenchmen from Charles's court as his chief officers. Meanwhile, as the Crusaders quarreled among themselves, Baibars continued to expand his power. In the spring of 1275, he led a raid in person into Cilicia, in which he sacked the cities of the plain, but was unable to penetrate to the Armenian capital at Sis. Two years later, he decided to invade Seljuk, Turkish Anatolia. The Mongol Ilkhan maintained a loose protectorate over the Turkish Sultanate, enforced by the presence of a considerable Mongol garrison. On the 18th of April April 1277. This garrison was routed by the Mongols at Albistan. Five days later, Baibars entered Caesarea. The Sultan's minister, Suleiman, and the Karamanian emir both hastened to congratulate Baibars, but the Ilkhan Abaga was roused and himself led a Mongol army by forced marches into Anatolia. Baibars did not wait for its arrival but retired back to Syria. Abaga quickly recovered control of the Turkish Seljuk Sultanate. The treacherous Suleiman was captured and executed, and rumour said that his flesh was served in a stew at the Mongol Ilkhan, next state banquet... But Baibars did not long survive his Anatolian adventure. Various stories have been told of his death. According to some chroniclers, he died as a result of wounds received in the Turkish campaign. According to others, he drank too much kumiz, the fermented mare's milk loved by the Turks and the Mongols. But the dominant rumour was that he had prepared poisoned kumiz for the Ayyubite prince of Karak, al-Kahir, son of Anazir Davud, who was with his army and who had offended him, and then he carelessly drank from the same cup without realising it before it was cleaned. He died on the 1st of July, 1277. His death removed the greatest enemy to the Crusaders since Saladin. When Baibars became Sultan, the Crusader dominion stretched along the coast from Gaza to Cilicia, with great inland fortresses to protect them from the east. In a reign of 17 years, he had reduced the Crusaders to a few cities along the coast, Acre, Tyre, Sidon, Tripoli, Jabail and Tortosa, with the isolated town of Latakia and the castles of Athlit and Markab. He did not survive to see their entire elimination, but he had made it inevitable. Personally, he had few of the qualities that won Saladin respect, even from his foes. He was cruel, Disloyal and treacherous, rough in his manners and harsh in his speech, his subjects could not love him, but they gave him their admiration with reason, for he was a brilliant soldier, a subtle politician and a wise administrator, swift and secret in his decisions and clear-sighted in his aims. Despite his slave origins, he was a patron of the arts and an active builder who did much to beautify his cities and to reconstruct his fortresses. As a man, he was evil, but as a ruler, he was amongst the greatest of his time. And because of his actions, it would not be long before the Mamelukes completed the destruction of the Crusaders. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be delighted if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how, before the Crusaders were finally destroyed, it was the Mongols who returned to play a major part in Mamluk and Crusader history.